Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. It's my great pleasure today to welcome to Table Talk two renowned Canadian chefs, who have been very instrumental in paving the road to Canadian culinary excellence and who have made a great impact on the restaurant scene in Canada. First, I'd like to introduce Jamie Kennedy. Jamie's name is synonymous with culinary excellence. He was born in Toronto and paved the way for Canadian cuisine throughout the 80s and 90s, opening various restaurants to critical acclaim. He's a graduate of George Brown College and started out as an apprentice at the Windsor Arms Hotel in Toronto. From 1979 to 1982, Jamie was a partner chef with Michael Statlander at Scaramouche Restaurant, where they received rave reviews from customers and critics alike. Jamie has owned and operated various Toronto landmarks, including Palmerston, JK at the ROM, Jamie Kennedy Wine Bar, Jamie Kennedy at the Gardner Museum, Windows by Jamie Kennedy in Niagara Falls, and Gilead Wine Bar and Cafe. For the past several years, Jamie has been living in Prince Edward County, where he runs a farm and where he has successfully marketed a series of summer dinner events and where he continues to operate the J.K. Fry's Farm Stand in Wellington and where most recently he started a new business called J.K. Larders. Jamie has written several cookbooks, represented Canada at the Boku store and was instrumental in establishing Knives and Forks an environmentally conscious alliance of farmers and chefs in 1989. He's also won the Gold Award, Caustic Media's Pinnacle Award, and he was a co-founder of the Slow Food Movement in Toronto. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks, thanks, Rosanna. Boy, great to have you. And we're gonna, we're gonna I'm gonna go to sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> You've done a lot. You sure have. Michael Statlander was born in Germany and began his professional culinary training while still a teenager. After immigrating to Canada in 1980, he and colleague Jamie Kennedy made their mark on the Toronto restaurant scene at Scaramouche. As chef at the world-renowned Sioux Carver House and at his pioneers, pioneering Statlanders and Nika in Toronto, Michael continued his unique and innovative approach, working to elevate Canadian food culture. In 1980, Michael and his family moved to a 100-acre farm near Collingwood at the top of Ontario's Niagara Escarpment, where they could live on the land. For several nights a week throughout the year, the Statlanders welcomed guests to their home to enjoy his food. Eigenson Farm has become an internationally celebrated destination for gourmands. In 2009, Michael and his wife Nabuyu also opened Hasai Restaurant and Bakery in Singhampton, Ontario. Asai is an extension of Eigenson Farms' philosophy and practices using locally raised and foraged ingredients. Michael is also founder and president of the Canadian Chefs Congress, which was created to connect chefs from coast to coast with farmers, fishermen, foragers, wineries, brewers, and artisanal food processors to create truly Canadian cuisine. Both Kennedy and Statlander have been actively involved and committed to promoting sustainable food and recognized for their achievements in support of organic food and local foods. So welcome, Michael. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's 
great to have you both here. It's been such a long time. And um, I was saying we miss having you in Toronto on the restaurant scene. And I know you're very happily ensconced in your farms. And we'll talk about that today and a few other things. But thank you for, for being here and making time out of your schedules uh, to be here with us on Table Talk. I, I thought we would start off, obviously, with, with the introductions. We, we can see how much you've done for the Toronto and Canadian restaurant scene. And you've been so instrumental in shaping the whole philosophy around Canadian cuisine. Um, and Michael, it's a little ironic when you think about it, because you're German by, uh, by birth, and you came from a, from a different country, but it took almost someone who came from a different country to make us recognize the value of Canadian cuisine. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. I thought we would start today with talking a little bit about what made you get into the restaurant industry, um, because both of you started at a very young age, um, you know, cooking and wanting to, to be in the restaurant industry. So what fueled that interest in, in food? Um, maybe, Jamie, we can start with you. Sure. Well, for me, um, it was a time of uh, quite a, a upheaval, like personal and family upheaval. After graduating from high school in 1974, my, um, my family was down in uh, Connecticut in the U.S. My dad had taken a, a contract position with Yale University that lasted six or seven years, uh, like from uh, age 10 to age 17. So I'd gone to high school down there. I had a whole network of friends, you know, the whole thing. Um, and then moved back to Toronto. And I deferred applying for university after graduation because I felt, I felt like I was young. I felt like I didn't want to commit to further education just yet. That rather I would work and travel in Europe. My goal was to buy a motorcycle and save up enough money to travel to Europe, buy a motorcycle, tour around, and then come back and maybe come go to university in the, in the following years. So instead, um, in during that year, in trying to find a job in order to make enough money to realize that dream, um, I quickly found out that getting a job wasn't that easy. And <laughs> so I started to focus on things that I cared about. Uh, like I was like any job, right? So I started to focus on things I cared about. And uh, one of the things was cooking. And really it was kind of not just about cooking, but the idea of, of restaurants is theater, the art of hospitality, all of those things really appealed to me. And one of the people, or I used to watch television, you know, in, at noon during lunch break, I'd watch Julia Child on, on she was already broadcasting, well, had been for years. I think her shows were all, already in repeat mode by the time I started tuning in in like, you know, late 60s kind of thing. And uh, the Galloping Gourmet. And, you know, I, got, I kind of got this bug and I started a culinary club in high school. And that really taught me about hospitality and, um, you know, going into someone's house and making dinner and sitting around the table and what happens around the table. So fascinating, you know, when you've got a meal that's been prepared for you and maybe wine to go with it, it sets you free, you know, and you can just be available to your table mates and such great conversation ensues, great ideas happen and it's just it's and it's wonderful to be in a position to provide that experience. So 
that's what I wanted. I wanted to provide that experience. So I, I took a job as um, an apprentice cook. And it, when I look back at that, it was just so lucky. I, I walked into the Windsor Arms Hotel, knew nothing about it. And it was 2.30 in the afternoon. So it was like after lunch service. So things had slowed down a bit. And the maitre d' wasn't so busy. So he said, look, I'll take you down to the kitchen, introduce you to the chef, et cetera. Long story short, that interview resulted in me picking up an apprenticeship position with that hotel, which lasted three years and really opened my eyes to, to uh, gastronomy. And at that time, of course, you know, uh, Rosanna, that uh, there are barely any Canadians uh, holding any positions of sway in the city, uh, in, in restaurants or hotels. And um, so my chef was a, was a Swiss man named Herbert Sanzoni. Right. And he wound up assigning me to his sous chef, uh, Ulrich Herzig, who was a, you know, he, he was a cook and also a butcher. He'd done both trades. So I got a lot of experience uh, right off the bat, like boning out things, chickens and legs of veal and <laughs> <laughs> all the fun stuff. Yeah. And clean, I, like I spent hours cleaning the fridge and preparing his station for him when he came in. You know, there was really that old school approach to uh, to learning. You know, he was my master and I basically had to serve him. Amazing. It's funny, you know, because I was I came from quite a liberal background and high school down in the states and you know in the, in the Yale University environment but still I didn't mind this kind of fascist uh, regime that was going on <laughs> in the restaurant you know kind of maybe it was a nice relief or something I don't know it was like good to be under that so much discipline anyway very, very military like right oh yes very much so yeah yeah so your love of, of cooking really started at a young age, and it's surprising that you actually started a culinary club in high school. I mean, you don't often hear stories like that. So it was really, yeah, I think, yeah. imbued in you at a very young age. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then and the continuation or the fascination continued. I never did take up uh, secondary education in a formal way. Of course, I went to George Brown College as part of my mm -hmm. apprenticeship and then later, you know, became a sommelier in the same school. But um the you know the fascination of hospitality i think you know michael will speak to this too coming to canada with fresh eyes but it was a great time to be in canada you know uh, especially with with the kind of approach that um, michael and i both shared which wasn't so much about just cooking it was about expressing ourselves as artists you know very true so so michael um tell us a little bit about how you got your start obviously you came to canada from germany but what was it about food that attracted you well i think uh, in general it was uh, my upbringing and where i was brought up what was in the northern part of uh, germany uh right beside a little a bigger town called lübeck and uh we were like a smaller farming community and uh you know, my uh, father and my grandfather, they had a business uh, where they were getting, uh, receiving every morning uh, uh, dairy products, uh, milk and cream, unpasteurized, of course. And uh, and then they were delivering it with an open kind of Volkswagen van. Each each of them had one and they were pumping milk and cream and going from house to house kind of thing, you know. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> when they came home, they were looking after livestock and we were growing all our own grain and potatoes, the old grain for the animals and so on. And, uh, and my mother, she had a little storefront 
and uh, also selling products from my uncle, who was a butcher. That's about maybe uh, 15, 20 kilometers away. So I spent time with that uncle once in a while when we were just seeing them as relatives, always saw what they were doing, you know. And then in the same town, my little village, I had an uncle who was a baker, another one was a pastry chef. You've got them all covered through your family. You've got everything, a butcher, a pastry chef. And my grandmother was a chef for the border police. Oh, wow. Because my, my little village was about one kilometer to the border of East Germany. So it was a big uh, kind of uh, station there. Later on, my mother, because my father's farm uh, went bankrupt, because then uh, homogenized milk and all that came in. And uh, we lost the farm, but my mother was also then became a chef with the border police. So that kind of uh, whole thing was always around. And uh, and I mean, this is a very kind of, uh, kind of two different environments. You have this agricultural kind of uh, little village. And then next door you have this uh, 800, over almost 900 year old town called Lübeck who was also uh, occupied by Napoleon. So there was a lot of uh, French influence in cooking, all of that. Right. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and then of course we were on the Baltic. So there was all this fish from the Baltic and on the other side is the North Sea. So it's also beautiful food around, you know. But uh, part of uh, growing up at my place was also like, uh, my mother had a kitchen garden. My father had the, uh, the hunt for the, uh, the hunting rights for the whole area. And uh, so we got all that kind of got wild game and uh, the gardens. And, and when it was time to pick uh, elderberries or uh, elderberries, and what was the other one? Uh, raspberries and blackberries and so on. It was not a question for us children if we would like to come along and pick them. No, we had to go. That was it because that was part of the winter kind of staples. Of kind of uh, in the cellar later on, right? So uh, so I grew up really up with uh, all these kind of still of uh, seasons of uh, growing up with like, uh, you know, killing the pig in the winter and all that preparing. Uh, my father for Christmas times, you know, he was buying all the carps for the neighbors. Carp is a big thing there because I almost became a fish farmer because I like fishing a lot too, but the cooking thing over kind of overweight, you know, and uh, so he killed all the carps for all the years and uh, for Christmas and so and New Year's. So, but uh, yeah, so this uh, whole um, cooking thing overwhelmed, and then I started uh, my apprenticeship when I was fourteen. So, what made you come to Canada? Well, that was, I think, uh, the part, the way I kind of grew up, you know, it was like, you know, I think I'm born 1957, not too long after the war kind of thing. So like all my, my, my uh, family, they always were like using uh, work as therapy, uh, kind of overcoming the war, you know, there's all kind of different stories. My father, I think he had a big problem with uh, being educated by the Hitler youth, you know, wow mother was a refugee running from the Russians. Uh, wow. About maybe seven family members got killed in the war. Just oh, by side. So there's a lot of stuff like that. And, uh, you know, the way they overcame this was like working. And I mean, they had to kind of start over again, too, right? For sure. What was the, that, what I always considered my, uh, my luck, 
because I was not really kind of looked after by my parents. More or less, I was hanging out with my friends who were living on the same area and same town. And in the summertime, we were hanging out on the river and floating on cut off a car roofs on that, you know, very <laughs> thin kind of thing. Right. Uh, you know, going swimming in the lakes in the summer, in the winter, skiing and whatever, but always outside, right? So uh, <clears throat> I think uh, the kind of uh, seat uh, to come to Canada was already started when I was about uh, finishing my apprenticeship because I always could see that uh, this kind of uh, <clears throat> late 70s, kind of like this kind of life slowly disappearing. I didn't go, I see it consciously, but I could feel it somehow, right? So then I started reading some books and so on, saw some films from Canada, and I thought that's where I'm going to go one day. Interesting. So so how did the both of you hook up? I know you both worked together, but tell us uh, both how that experience surfaced and um, and what it was in each other that made you such kindred spirits, because there was a lot of commonalities, I think. Well, I think uh, because, uh, you know, we were both working at the Grand Hotel National in uh, Switzerland. I just finished my uh, uh, Navy service. I was in there on a destroyer there. And uh, coming to Switzerland and uh, working with uh, the Grand Internacional in Luzerne, that's where Jamie and me met. And also, uh, I think we had a little bit of time to connect because uh, uh, this season then started right away. So we had, I think, almost like over a month always where we kind of uh, spend time with climb mountains and so on, you know. Then, Jamie, I think later on you came with me to my hometown too. I introduced you. Wow. And uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, and I think there was this kind of, uh, you know, hippie time too, right? <laughs> Gamla, right? So uh, we were kind of, I think we were not the kind of really, maybe we were, but I mean, I was definitely kind of formally trained, but I always had like an open mind to other things too. And I think that was, it's the same thing to Jamie too. So Jamie, were you the one who kind of uh, told Michael he should come to Canada? When, he, when you met him in uh, Switzerland, or how did that happen? So I do remember <clears throat> being at the Hotel Nacional um, and, you know, being nervous about, about this new chapter coming from Canada and not, not knowing anything about Swiss culture, except I have to say that working for Swiss people in Toronto, I already had a, the language in my ear. Swiss German was spoken in the kitchen. That was the language of the kitchen where I worked in Toronto. There were so many Swiss nationals working there. There were. That, that at least I had that advantage over somebody, you know, coming from Canada who, who knew no, had no language skills in, in German or Swiss German. So I had a little bit, but not much. And so I am like casting around, casting my eye around the, um, the brigade, because, you know, you have to understand that a, a hotel, well, you do understand a hotel has a lot of, sh a lot of cooks, right? And there's, a, for, a, for a, a grand hotel like that, there's every, every uh, rung of the ladder or every step of the hierarchy represented. Um, that's just the way it was. So there are a lot of people in the kitchen and um, somehow uh, I was drawn to Michael you know, he um, he wore a blue jean jacket with a Canadian flag on the lapel. 
or on the shoulder or something like that. So I said, oh, okay. <laughs> there's there's someone who's flying the Canadian flag around. <laughs> somehow we were drawn to each other and, and Michael spoke no English at all. Wow. Um, or like one or two words. And my German was shit. <laughs> <laughs> and but somehow through that we managed to communicate anyway. That's incredible. And um, you know, as Michael said, you know, we we sort of started hanging out. I remember there was a mountain there called Pilatus, which is that looms out of the uh, lake of four cantons there. Uh, it's a beautiful setting, Lucerne. And we took it upon ourselves to climb up there and we were gonna go camping. But So this is like in April, I think we started in April uh, in 1978 at that hotel and um, didn't figure that it would be still snowing but you know as you go up <laughs> the, the climate changes right you gain altitude and then suddenly it's snowing and then i remember like we were sleeping out camping and it was snowing on us you know we, i don't think like do we even have a tent michael do you remember that crazy no, we stayed overnight huh i think we stayed overnight right yeah we did we did without I mean, a tent <laughs> you managed to make a fire yeah, that's where Michael was really impressed with my fire making skills. <laughs> Crazy <laughs> I was, time. I was, climbing, I was climbing up trees, getting dead wood, you know, because it was still dry, that kind of thing. That's but too anyway, funny. We just we just hung out and we became best buds, really best buds over that over that um, summer, and then this cor corresponded with me receiving a letter from Morden Yallis, who was going to become our boss in Toronto. And essentially it was, um, would you like to come and interview for this job of the then to be, or still brainchild Scaramouche? There wasn't a name right. for it yet. It was just uh, that thing. And so uh, I can't remember exactly what went down, but whether I went to Toronto to start the interview process and um, indicated that I would take the job only if only if um, Michael could come with me. Wow. Was kind of, it was kind of like a condition. Um, yeah. We both went over uh, after the season to Canada together too, right? I yeah. Myself too, right? Is that, did we cook for Morty then? Uh, I think we cooked a dinner once or like swap, I think it was too. <laughs> What was God what kind of blew away partly? Yeah, and uh, Burl was appalled. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Jamie, you were really Michael's agent, it sounds like. At that point, it was, um, you know, Michael, as he, as you've heard, he, he had this dream to come to Canada, which started very early uh, as a result of many things. Post-war Germany, um, a lot of uh, trauma and angst. And basically... I think also I um, felt that Michael and I were both kind of nonconformists in, in a way. And things are quite structured in Germany. And um, for Michael to have his own gig in Germany would have been more difficult, certainly, than in Canada. Correct me if I'm wrong, Michael. But, oh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, the thing is about here, it's freedom, eh? So it's, it's right. quite different. 
and uh, also like for like someone like me uh, to acquire like uh, 100 acres would be pretty much i don't know i mean you could become a superstar chef too and make millions of dollars too right but right that's not how i uh, got this farm you know that's yeah. amazing so you worked together at Scaramouche for a few years, and obviously you became the darlings of the Toronto culinary scene. You had a lot of great reviews. Um, people like Joanne Cates loved you, gave you lots of uh, rave reviews, and customers loved it. Um, what happened after Scaramouche? And what, what, what were you trying to create, I guess, at Scaramouche with your food philosophy? Were you incorporating what you had learned uh, in Europe as well? And, and what did you want to create at Scaramouche that was perhaps lacking in Canada or Toronto at that time? Well, for me, well, you want to go ahead, Jimmy? Well, go, go, Michael. So for me, it was like, so after we kind of more or less sealed the deal that uh, and uh, started the progress of immigration to come to Canada, uh, I was, uh, went back to Germany and I worked with one of the greatest chefs of Germany, Vincent Klink, who's still cooking today, he had a two-star Michelin and he gave up one Michelin star because he didn't want to have two. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the thing was, so like I really learned things about what uh, I would have never, never really kind of figured out so much by myself. Like, uh, you know, like, I mean, there was like 1977, I think. He had little cards on his table. All our ingredients are from biodynamic uh, kind of uh, uh, operations and so on, you know. And uh, it was like the time of like the Nouvelle Cuisine. So like German chefs were trying to do the same thing in Germany using in, uh, great uh, ingredients and all that. Uh, farms and so on, organic farms. And uh, also, but the other thing was for me, from this guy, what I learned was uh, you, don't you don't have to be just a chef, you can do other things, you know? So that guy played uh, a French flute and he played, he did bow shooting and he did uh, bicycle painting, he did photography. So that kind of kept him in balance, right? So I learned that. So, uh, so I'd worked with him for about one and a half year. And then uh, I went to England for six months and prepared myself to speak a little bit of English. So I was, uh, my first job was working in a Jewish hotel in Bournemouth, where I was a pastry chef. The chef was an Arab, had a glass eye, and he was serving in the six day war against Israel. And he had a German shepherd and he had a BMW and he loved me, you know. <laughs> This sounds like a movie. It sounds like a movie. It was. It was like, but I, it gets better, you know. I mean, uh, but I, this was okay for maybe like two months or so. And then I got out of that. And then I went to, uh, became uh, a nurse auxiliary in the hospital for nervous diseases on Russell Square. Oh my goodness. London. And actually one, one of my uh, interesting gigs there was, I wouldn't call it a gig, but uh, that's what it seemed so I was a nurse auxiliary, and it was the hospital for nervous diseases on Russell Square. And mostly, like the job of the auxiliaries were to more or less talk to these uh, people who had like uh, some kind of uh, mental problems, right? Like uh, Alzheimer and dementia and so on. A lot of them were actually soldiers from the Second World War, and I was German again, you know. So, uh, but I never had a problem doing very good talks and. Uh, 
I had the uniform of a student doctor. And uh, <laughs> so I was uh, like, then tube this, and then I was kind of putting a tube down this uh, gentleman's throat. And he was, <laughs> he was a chef with Escovier. He was an Austrian and he was a chef with Escovier. Are was, you serious? Yes. And, uh, and then I heard later on from some nurses that the uh, chief doctor was asking about what was wrong with this guy there. The, he was so nervous with the tube. And, and then they must have explained that I was only like a nurse auxiliary there and I was only there a couple of weeks. <laughs> and uh, and uh, but next next day right away I had the proper uniform. Somehow they managed to get me one done. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. Who knew you had that kind of medical experience in your background? Well, you're a butcher and a chef. It's very similar. Yeah, it's similar. Of course, yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Too bad we can't get paid surgeons' wages, eh, Mikhail? Oh, yeah. I know, really. So when you two hooked up at Scaramouche you really created a whole new way of, of cooking and you really focused a lot on farm to table, organic foods. Um, tell us a little bit about how that evolved. I think uh, I'll, I'll start, Michael. So this, this was the creative direction of uh, Morden Yalas, really. He, um, he'd been experiencing uh, French gastronomy, you know, he'd, he'd probably gone to Paul Bocuse's restaurant. He and his wife, Edie, were infatuated with, with uh, French cuisine and, and, and gastronomy in general and toured around Europe and, um, you know, decided that this was something they wanted to, to uh, emulate in, uh, in, in Toronto. His dad owned the Benvenuto Hotel. And the, if you knew that dining room, you'd uh, understand why he wanted to change it. It was just one of those stodgy, dated. terrible, you know, dated uh, Toronto hotel dining rooms that here was this great opportunity to do something fresh and exciting. And they had, they had the uh, resources to do it and the creativity and, and the passion. And uh, so he put together a whole team of people. And one thing was great about Morty, lots of things are great about Morty, but he included us in the, uh, in the process, the entire process. We weren't just relegated to the kitchen. He wanted our input on, you know, architectural details that would affect wow. how, how, the, how the whole dining room looked and, looked and felt. You know, we went around and visited restaurants. Uh, I don't think Michael was there yet at that point when, Morty and I took a tour down in New York City and visited all the restaurants of the moment uh, in New York so that he would, uh, this would help him form the direction that Scaramouche took. I remember um, getting menus from uh, Chez Panisse that were, you know, hand printed menus um, back in the day and they'd arrive in like a big manila envelope because his cousin lived in Berkeley and she used to go to that restaurant quite regularly. And he'd send me the menus and say, hey, take a look at these. This is, this is like this amazing thing that's going on in, uh, in San Francisco right now. And so there was, that was kind, those were our, that was our direction, really. Um, both, of, both of us were also very intrigued with what was Nouvelle Cuisine. And for Michael, it was the Neue Deutsche Küche was going on in Germany. And uh, 
France, the Nouvelle Cuisine, I was fascinated with, with that as well. And so we, and we wanted to cook a la minute. That was kind of a thing, right? <laughs> and I can remember us getting into a lot of trouble, actually, for that, like insisting that we basically started, not from scratch, but that we would prepare food as it was ordered, uh, table by table in the restaurant. And for an 86-seat restaurant, because that's what it was, the actual restaurant, and then there was the pasta bar, too, but that was a another another passion idea of Morty's that he really wanted to create this kind of two-tiered dining experience right. because there's nothing else around it right there's like you couldn't go next door to a pasta bar like you know you, right. he wanted to create that within the house so that was also part of our direct direction um but people waited for an awful long time to get served their food in those early days so uh, we had a maitre d', I remember his name is Max. And Max, you know, he loved us and uh, really got into what we were doing and um, loved this sort of fresh approach. Uh, but he was, you know, hiding behind the structural columns in the, in the dining room so that customers wouldn't see him. Because he didn't, he didn't want to have eye contact with them because they were like, "What the hell's going on in the kitchen?" You know, we have, it's been over an hour, and we, and you know, we're getting drunk over here, and we haven't had. Oh any my goodness! Food. You know, so there was there was there was definitely some growing pains, but uh, it was a it was a it was an amazing time. You know, I mean, Mike, both Michael and I worked extremely hard. Uh, yeah, long, long. Put in put in uh, perspective. Also, we were twenty two years old. That's right. <laughs> Tell twenty two years old people today to do to do what we did. <laughs> that is very Google, true. Google or something, you know. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, Rosanna, we were working two services. You know, we did lunch and dinner, and uh, I remember Michael and I rented an apartment together in. Um, in Forest Hill, it was within kind of jogging distance of the restaurant. I remember after lunch service, I'd jog home and have like a power nap. I think it was, it was like immediate. Head hit the pillow, boom, out. Wow. And then come back again at five o'clock to get ready for uh, for service. There, obviously, there were cooks in the kitchen doing the mise en place. And then we'd come back and take our stations and away we go, you know. Again. But despite the challenges, you you had quite a lot of success there. So you managed to somehow deal with those challenges. <laughs> was that yeah. just was that luck, Jamie? Or I mean, what happened? That's that's a big job for a twenty two year old and a lot of responsibility. Yeah, I you know I, Michael and I were a great team. I think it was a it was a great call. I think that you know, we were, we were very young. And so also like our ability to communicate was not very developed, not very mature. I'm talking about like between us and the right. environment in the kitchen. So I think at one point we started to um, move in different directions, you know, and for Michael, it was uh, Statlanders was the next, was the next stop on his, on his uh, itinerary, but he'll speak to that and I stayed about another I don't know maybe close to a year after Michael left mm -hmm. and then I fell in love and um, got married and left and and used that um, honeymoon 
period to give my notice uh, at Scaramouche. And, and then I went off and, you know, did other things as well after the honeymoon, had my own catering company, et cetera. But um, it was a, it was a magical time. It was full of extremely hard, passionate work. And uh, it's, it's a time that I still look at uh, uh, as a very formative and, you know, very proud to have been there. You know, one thing I want to touch on um, um, in, uh, in our conversation is also the, um, the, um, the concept of activism within, within, the, within our world of, of gastronomy and, and, and culinary arts and hospitality is that I think both Michael and I realized at one point that um, the amount of fame and notoriety, notoriety that we were both achieving um, we realized that, you know, that we held positions of, uh, we were kind of like gatekeepers of knowledge and also of, um, of, um, philosophy really. And, and that we could shape the way people thought about food and, sure. and, uh, and so on. And sometimes that was through activism. So, you know, when we started Knives and Forks together in 1989, I think that was um, that was kind of a bold move outside of the envelope, you know, where we were inviting in a whole other uh, cohort of like-minded people that were involved in a different aspect of food production. You know, like in, in later on, in the parlance of slow food, we were all co-producers, right? And customers are included in that in that sort of triad of uh, of uh, people involved in in the production and um, uh, cooking, execution, and uh, farming, and then customers. You know, customers also play a role. And then you know, Michael Michael uh, um, took the activism to another to another level, really, and continues to do that. And you should probably ask some questions about that, the events that he's been involved with and the, uh, the um, <clears throat> events on the farm that are in support of one, one uh, concern or another. Uh, well, they're inspiring for me to see that Michael take that leadership role. You were both so ahead of your time. You know, when you talk about knives and forks in 1989, I mean, we hear a lot about sustainability and organics today. But this goes back years and years ago. So you were really, really ahead of the curve. Um, and obviously, your food philosophy had a lot to do with that and the, and the activism that you're talking about, Jamie. That was always part, I think, of your philosophy. The, the farm to table movement has always been very central in both of your uh, personalities. Um, how do you see that have changed to where it is today? Do you still see that same level of activism? Or do you think now it's just are they emptier words today than they than they used to be? Either of you can answer this. I think for me, it's more not so much the uh, activism anymore. Um, I I think for me, it's kind of uh, my my problem. I always have is like uh, social media and uh, in general, like computers and cell phones. I don't have a cell phone, you know. So uh, it's like for me, um, for me, it's more. I got, I got out of these the activism a little bit more and got more into art. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like art as uh, you know, as a form of uh, you know showing the way how you think about it and maybe 
inspire other people too, right? But your food has always been very artistic as well. I mean, really, the art came into how you presented the dish. It's true. But, uh, you know, also, this is the beautiful beautiful thing about this farm here that uh, it kind of... uh, you know, if you have a vision and an idea, or sometimes the land tells you that to do, uh, you can always do have these different things. For example, like uh, 2016, I did this project that's called the Pine Spiel Project, where was a 12 course menu for our pine forests, and each course included pine. Wow. And, uh, so, like more or less, so you become a kind of um, a warrior for the forest, you know, and stand up for the forest and uh, like an ex- exponent for the natural environment. Mm. You know? That's fabulous. So it was a celebration of 25 years uh, at the farm here, and uh, one of my uh, in my one of my installation sculpture was where I took uh, Donald Trump, uh, Putin, Erdogan, Ergon, and uh, the guy from uh, Syria put them all in one bag and put a big a stick behind it. And it's a saying in German, you can put them all in one bag and you can close it and you take a stick and you hit them and you never hit the wrong one. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's how I can ex- express myself through art, the way I think. And, uh, you know, I love that. <clears throat> so there's all kinds of stuff like that, you know, so, yeah. So I think uh, my project, I think, uh, for the future now is uh, I think the uh, cooking in the dining room is over. And I, it's uh, over. You don't, you're not doing that anymore. I'm not going to do it once in a while for here and there for some very good customers. But what I'm really going to concentrate on from now on is uh, art, nature, and food. Where I'm going to wow, do that's interesting. my events, what I do outside, you know, that's what I'm going to really concentrate on. And Jamie, how about you? What are you doing these days at the farm? I know, obviously, the pandemic has changed a lot of restaurateurs and what they're doing. And I know it's impacted both of you in different ways. Maybe we'll touch on that in a moment. But what are you up to these days at the farm? So these days, I'm, uh, it's interesting, a little bit parallel with Michael. I, you know, well, I haven't had a restaurant since 2015. Mm-hmm. So the restaurant idea is um, it fades further and further into the rear view mirror for me. Um, I'm very much involved in the community here. I do. And I, and I trade uh, what I know about cooking uh, in a lot of community based events, supporting one cause or another. It's um it's a, it's a form of philanthropy, right? I mean, right. I feel so fortunate to have a, a trade that allows me to provide uh, hospitality uh, in, in a way that can be a forum for fundraising for others, for other groups, or obviously groups that interest me. I'm not just going to, you know, lend my name to any old group. Of course. <laughs> but um, so I, I do that. Uh, the But even those kinds of things that are, that involve a lot of uh, planning and, and brain power and so on. I'm, I'm doing fewer and fewer of those, um, sort of shifting my focus a little bit. Ret- retirement is not really a word that I, I throw around, but definitely changing perspective a little bit. It doesn't surprise me at all to hear 
um, what Michael is evolving towards, um, because I think that's also a factor of of uh, the phys- this physicality associated with running a restaurant or For sure or or doing catering gigs where you know you're going all over the place and setting up and executing and tearing down and traveling back. I mean, it's a it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and I'm feeling like it's a younger person's game. For sure. <laughs> no, for sure. That life. happens to all of us. Yeah. And um, I really enjoy it. Like it's, it's a, I think it's, from now on, it's more about picking and choosing, you know, and doing things that, that uh, give me joy. And perhaps there's hard work associated with it, but it's, but still it gives me joy. Like having these, um, this French fry stand in the market every Saturday, it's, it's kind of a nice speed for me, you know? And it it satisfies a lot of the um, the basic components or yeah the foundational structure of what why I got into why I got into what I got into in the first place. You know, there's still the interaction with the public. You're still providing uh, hospitality in a way, giving joy to, to other sure. people through the knowledge that you have. And it's a way for me to interact with people and be social as well. Um, so I enjoy that. I enjoy that a lot. Plus, I've got two two new granddaughters, so. Oh, wow. You're a grandfather. Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe you're a grandfather. That's great. Congratulations. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So so let me ask you this. Over the last three years, the restaurant hospitality industry has been decimated in so many different ways because of the pandemic. So many restaurants closed down. A lot of great chefs left the industry. Uh, there's been an exodus of labor that has has left the industry. People have been burned out. Uh, I think the pandemic shone a spotlight on a lot of flaws that existed. As someone who was such an integral part of the industry for so many years and worked so hard and so many long hours, looking back at what you're seeing now through the last three years, what do you think the industry needs to do to improve where it's at? Because we can't have a conversation these days without talking about labor shortages. And I know you probably both dealt with that at various times in your career as well, but it's never been as seismic as it is today. What, as an observer now, more than a participant, because you're not involved in a restaurant day to day, what do you think are the issues that need to be addressed and how can the industry fix those issues? Hmm. That's a big question. It is. Do you want to wade into that, Michael? Or I can give my few uh, things. Uh, but, you know, I think first thing is, uh, yeah, definitely the labor shortage is a big thing. And, uh, for example, I have you still that little restaurant in St. Hanton High Side, right? So uh, uh, I was have, was looking for a chef and, uh, and so on and some other stuff. And uh, all my applicants uh, were, came from India or Nepal. So, uh, you know, that's like, uh, yeah, open the gates, let the people in. I think that's a good idea, actually. More immigration. I mean, uh, there's also the point now, what we, what we hear all over is that the uh, an aging uh, workforce is retiring, so they're not, obviously not there, you know. And um, regarding to um, what has to be changed, I think also that's, again, uh, uh, different. I mean, where you are located, that's another uh, one thing what you have to consider. And uh, regarding the restaurant, again, it's also the person, what kind of restaurant wants the person to have, right? 
So it's, uh, but you know, I guess a lot of things comes from uh, right now with real estate and uh, you know, it's, 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 and people, I mean, with the recession or not a recession yet, but uh, the whole market, it's not, as Jamie said, it's not an easy question at all to answer, but I think, uh, I think, I don't know. It's like, there's a lot of, uh, when you look at the, the TVs, a lot of things about food going on in there. And, uh, but uh, it's hard to say. I don't know. Like, uh, I know, I've, I think everybody has to kind of carve out their own kind of uh, way of doing, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, it's hard for the, for the, for the young, young students, uh, for the young chefs who want to get into this business because, there you need first some direction and you work have to work with people and all that stuff but i think that's the way you have to go in some way uh before you really know that you're confident uh, and you know what you want to do yourself you know jamie anything to add on that uh, i know you've owned so many different restaurants and you've dealt with this issue so many times i'm sure but it seems to be so much bigger these days and yeah, I mean, you said something which which struck me earlier. You said that the pandemic uh, kind of shone a light on on some of the you know systemic problems with how restaurants are in in society. And you know, I often think of the experience of say going to um, an analyst, you know, and you're going for your therapy and you're spending an hour with this analyst. And you walk away and you, you dropped 250 bucks, let's say. Okay. And that was for an hour. Um, or, you know, you hear of, um, you hear of, um, like, say you're friends with some lawyers and you, and you hear that there's an intern who's just joined the firm and the starting salary of that intern was uh, $90,000, <laughs> you know? So there's this, tremendous disparity between what's going on in our industry with respect to what you can expect to earn and spend. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a societal, where do you put the value on things? Like what's, what's, what, you know? And so this is something that uh, I think one thing's for sure. Restaurants will always exist. There's this desire for, uh, certain people have to start a restaurant. They feel very strongly about sharing in one way, like something like a, a passion or a love or a calling. Some people feel it's a calling. Whatever the, the feeling is that gets you into it doesn't matter really. You're, you're, there are going to be people in society that, that's, that get into cooking, get into restaurants and, that's for sure and so you know michael said so people have to figure how to carve out their own point in that and i think that that question is uh, some something that is being asked and needs to be continually asked uh, almost on a you know certainly with pandemic on a kind of a monthly basis because of the ground shifted so rapidly over the course of three years. And by the way, I, I, I have nothing but uh, respect for, and uh, I really felt for my colleagues during that whole time and still do. Um, I've 
felt a little bit removed from it being out here and not having uh, restaurants mm-hmm. anymore and not having staff. But I knew I, I could feel what people were going through. Very, very tangible. Heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking. And uh, damn, you know, um, and those that managed to get through it and see the other side and, and continue to work, uh, kudos, you know, and nothing but respect. How do you how do you define it going forward? So many more issues are at play now. People, there's pay equity, pay equity. There's the the Me Too movement that is seeing uh, women and and uh, others. Uh, the Black Lives Matter. Any kind of group that say, hey, yeah, what about me? And this this inter- industry has not treated me well over the over the course mm. of the last couple of decades. And all of these voices are starting to be heard. Thankfully, more and more. And that also is obviously going to change uh, the landscape. Uh, I think some restaurants are, have adopted a no-tip policy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I stand behind that. I think that that's, that's a great thing. It, there, you know, <laughs> it shouldn't be up to the, the customer uh, exactly. if, they want, if they want to uh, enhance or decrease someone's, someone's earnings. And that's unfortunately the way it's structured, right? That you... That the tip structure is uh, is to prop up really uh, a, a, a terrible. Mm. It's a deficiency, yeah. And yeah. <clears throat> so people that are you know insisting on on discarding that that uh, norm, uh, you know, I'm behind it. But then it's like, so what happens then? And then you know, I think invariably it's it's going to cost more uh, for dining experiences, and I think. What's happening is that we're there are going to be fewer and fewer um, full service restaurants as a result. Uh, There's so many things that have are are shaping post post uh, pandemic that uh, I think are here here to stay. You know, um, but it's I, I think it's very much that. I mean, there's there's <clears throat> there, the, the new practitioners in our in our in our hospitality world have to grapple with all these new challenges and they'll find a way through it. I know they will, you know, because this, as I said, this, this cultural part of us is not going away. It's and only people want to eat out more and more every day, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at our own, our own trajectory, Rosanna, you know, what have we seen in the last, and Michael, what have we seen in the last 40, 40 years, 40 plus years that we've all been observing it's like a tremendous uh, evolution in 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 the expectation that that dining out is is a, is a, has become such a, a big part of our culture, and not only dining out, but seeing <clears throat> seeing all kinds of cultures represented on the dining scene that weren't weren't represented forty That's years right. ago. I mean, it used to be that people went out on a special occasion, and now people are eating out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and everything in between. So yeah. huge growth. People figure it out. They will. And it's, um, it'll only be for the better. I think. I'm interested in knowing what you think about the whole Michelin guide uh, arriving in Toronto and Vancouver now. And what do you think that means for the, um, for the continued evolution of the restaurant industry here in Canada? Uh, You made a comment, Jamie, about perhaps there's going to be less full service restaurants. And Mm. there's a lot of discussion these days that fine dining might start to disappear because of, you know, the high cost and the lack of labor. Do you think the timing of this too with Michelin, they're coming just at a time when we're coming out of the pandemic. 
How do you think it's going to bode for the industry moving forward? I don't know. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm a big fan of it, actually. You know, I'm being, being Canadian. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who would argue that this will put us on the international stage and, you know, which isn't, isn't a bad thing so much, but I think we have our own, we have our own um, strong food culture here that a guide like Michelin, and they're, they're so, they're, it's such a broad question. I mean, you know, um, I mean, look, there, that example of Michael's, uh, Michael's former chef deciding, like willfully taking away a star, you know, yes. from his establishment. And that says a lot about probably, you know, the feelings that I have about it. It's that it creates this, this uh, expectation and demand that is kind Pressure. of artificial. Yeah. Pressure on chefs. Pressure on chefs and competition amongst amongst chefs and, and disappointment, you know, when you don't have it. And and so why did that person get it? And then why not me? And why not that person? And, you know, it starts to feel weird. And uh, we don't need to feel weird. <laughs> we, I mean, you know, I think I, I've always been against competitions anyway, Um you know those those kinds of uh, salon culinaire that that we used to all really get into, and I I've never really gotten behind that. I've never never enjoyed it, and I think for the same reason it it kind of interesting. Or those Michael, shows, those those Iron Chef shows that pit one chef against another, and it's such an artificial environment. And how can you really? love something you know there's so much to do with with love and expression and food that that that, that was taken away by those kinds of competitions and i think it, to a larger extent that that exists with uh, with michelin as well interesting perspective michael how about you anything you'd like to add to that well yeah i you know what i don't know if it's like for i mean I can see it that some of the young chefs are really kind of into this because they want to be part of this elitist kind of uh, society and club, you know? Yeah, but I mean, the idea about cooking is just like a try to be the best you can always, you know, and uh, love it. But um, I definitely don't like to be also criticized for every little thing here and there either, you know? So, I mean, right. I mean for me... Uh, if people like to have this Michelin thing going for them, that's fine. But me personally, I'm not exactly a fan of it either. So I'd be interested to know your feelings about the supply chain these days. There's a lot of challenges with supply chain. And I know as, as two chefs that have also had their own farms where they're actually mm. producing a lot of the products that they're actually using on the menu. Um, you know, how... What do you see from that supply chain problem that exists these days and what can operators do differently uh, to avoid some of those fluctuations that are going on these days? I started to feel with uh, knives and forks and the idea, I mean, for Michael, this was kind of a natural move to start something like knives and forks from his experience growing up in Germany. And he just understood that whole relationship. For me, it was a little different. But uh, at least it was very eye-opening to have that experience with growers who were right in, in my own neighborhood, in my own backyard. And it was kind of an aha moment as, all, uh, as well for determining a direction, creative direction 
in cooking for the next and uh, continuing on that that celebration of local excellence is just so important um in feeling connected with the products that you're using and it, that fueling your creativity and all of the things and being constricted by the seasons and not shopping the world for mm -hmm. for ingredients but actually working within what the seasonal offerings are in the place that you live so um I, but it, it it starts to 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 uh move to a to a, a larger discussion which is more about food security and as we have experienced and will continue to experience disruptions and problems and you know just bad ideas like the fact that california is is is, is growing and exporting food in a from a desert climate and having to import all their water to do so i mean there's just something fundamentally wrong with that picture you know <laughs> and <clears throat> so i'm all for any region in the world establishing its own uh food sovereignty meaning that the, for the large for the most part they're producing their own food for their mm -hmm. own people and that food isn't traveling very far right. and, and you know and i'm not i'm not uh, so dogmatic that i that i cast aside you know if i'm living in north america that i'm not going to use chocolate or tea or coffee that's not what i mean but it's it's more about you know do you really have to have those strawberries in february you know or so what do we have what can we do to make sure that uh, we have food available to us throughout the year and that we aren't cut off uh, because the international supply chain is disrupted for some reason you know but but jamie how do we do that when greenland keeps disappearing at a huge rate and uh you know there's less and less green space in this country it seems um how do we create that food sovereignty that you're talking about it just has to be a it has to be a, a mandate i mean it's uh, it's something that has to be legislated almost you know mm -hmm. it'll get to that point it will how can it not I mean the 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 population of the of the globe keeps increasing um you know we're, we uh, there's a lot of bad farming going on around the world mm -hmm. that's depleting uh the ozone layer uh large tracts of the rainforest are being given over to cattle farming which is just a big mistake it's way too much energy goes into producing uh, a pound of beef there's so many other alternatives that that don't require so much input uh but it's just that we're we want these things you know and yeah. as a as a society we need we want those things and uh it's just so we know. have to change our priorities is what you're saying yeah, so that's we don't right. expect certain foods in certain times of the year mm -hmm. yeah yeah just everything in a little bit more balance you know probably right. a lot more plant-based food um very little meat um enjoy it when you have it um you know i, I it's when you're when you're involved in thinking about these things uh as a professional like i do it's it's very clear really you know it's uh and then when you hear of these disruptions and things happening on a more frequent basis and you just go well yeah 
Of course. Of <laughs> that course. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, so the solution is not to fix the supply chain internationally, I don't think. Because I don't think that'll ever happen anymore. It's more about let's let's recalibrate, let's refocus on what's what's going on in our that's yeah, interesting. In our own regions, yeah. And Jamie, with your own farm, um, what are you growing on your farm these days? I know there was talk a few years ago that you wanted to get into grapes, um, yeah. to produce some wines. Are you doing that? I am. I'm, I'm growing grapes, but it's it's largely a gestural Rosanna. You know, like I'm not a commercial wine grower. Right. Like, um, in fact, I've given over my my um, maintenance and production of the crop, if there is one, <laughs> to my neighbor who made who is an actual winemaker and has a has a wine make a wine company called Scanners Vineyard. So he manages my vineyard and makes wine. Now uh, it's very tiny; it's only two acres. Right. I used to I used to grow a lot more food when I had restaurants. Um, I'm growing less and less actually. I just have a little a little uh, kitchen garden now. Interesting. But I have a few things that I use uh, that I can draw from. I, you know, produce a lot of tomatoes, so I, I preserve tomatoes and use them throughout the year. And if I'm doing a catering gig or anything, I pull that pull that kind of stuff out. So but you are occasionally uh, doing the catering a little bit. Are you still doing a little bit of that? I am uh, fewer and fewer. As I, as I was mentioning earlier, fewer and fewer gigs. Um, you know, trying to use more about what I know and hoping I can and can find work that taps into the things that I'm talking about today, like that, how I can consult with people to move them in a, maybe a bit of a different direction. That's fabulous. Then, then, you know, doing catering jobs, which, you know, obviously are a way that I can earn and, uh, you know, obviously still need to continue to earn, but uh, maybe in a different way. Excellent. And Michael, I know with Eigenson, you're doing some dinners occasionally and you still have Hasai, right? You're still doing a little bit there. Um, can you just yeah, bring us to yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, uh, until uh, this year, last year, we were like still fully operating. A little bit, uh, you know, there was a little bit uh, the year before also with COVID, a little bit of a shorter seasons. But uh, we grow like probably and raise the food what we kind of serve here is about uh, 80% from uh, end of June till uh, November. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So you really are self-sufficient in so many ways. Yeah, we get the, ideally I like to always get the fish from the Georgian Bay here or some of Lake Erie sometimes. And then of course we forage too. We got mushrooms and all that stuff, you know, and all wild foods, right? So it's great. Yeah. So as a way to wrap up, um, obviously, you've had so many years in the industry, and we haven't touched on every single thing, because that would take forever. Um, but as someone that has been in the industry for 40 years plus, and has grown and done so many different things, what kind of advice would you give to young people today aspiring to be a chef and to own their own restaurant, based on your own lessons that you've learned over the years? What kind of advice would you um, Oh, offer them if someone is really interested i should say come to eigenson farm for a summer <laughs> how things should work the way i see it i always say to the interns um you know oh, we are here now 30 years right and uh i never paid one but i think 
Yes, so like, you know, we must have had at least 200 maybe uh, interns here, if not more. And we never paid them. But I think, you know... You're going to get into trouble for that, Michael. (laughs) No, no, no. This is the thing. You have breakfast, you have lunch, we have dinner, you get wine, you get beer, you're part of the family, and you see what a real living is all about with the land and uh, with cooking, not just like... You know, high gastronomy, you know? So, like I said to people always, forget about what where, where you come from. Not forget about it, but forget about it. And uh, just take this half year you're here and take this as an investment into your life. And for, I mean, that's not for everybody, right? You have to be a player, part of the community, uh, you know, play the rules, all that stuff, you know? But it's a great investment. That's what I try to tell people. And it's about a different kind of lifestyle, I would suppose, as well. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, I think for like, I mean, uh, for young chefs, uh, particularly, I mean, it's, I think it's the general, it's, it's the only one way. Try to work with the best people you can work with. And, uh, and when you think about the best, also what suits your style and where you want to go, right? So then... Uh, after that, it's like, uh, you know, um, yeah, you find your way easy. I think you are definitely easier. Wonderful. Jamie, what's your words of advice? Well, for cooks, there's a lot of noise coming at young people from all kinds of sources, right? And social media is one of those sources that plays a big part, I think, in shaping people's perception of the world and certainly of our world, the hospitality industry, um, so that there may be this idea or whatever, they might have some sort of preconceived notion of what it is to be a cook and to be successful in our industry. And one thing I don't think will ever change Uh, if you are cooking the way that uh, Michael and I both approach cooking, which is in a holistic way and from the beginning to the end with as few pre-prepared ingredients as possible, Mm -hmm. we really strip it down and start at the beginning, right? But with with that kind of approach, if you're going to be into it, what, what can't be ignored is that it's going to be uh, it's going to take up the lion's share of your time, you know? And I think people need to kind of get their head around that before they sign up for it, because if they're going to be successful and really move through their life using uh, cooking as their profession, then that's what they have to be prepared for. It's a, it's really a question of um, execution and renewal, you know, especially in the restaurant context where you're, preparing each day to a mm-hmm. certain point where you're like setting up all these dominoes, you know, and the dominoes are, are points of cooking or methods of cooking, bringing things to a certain point, spending a lot of time and energy nurturing that process over the course of the day, and then getting into service where you're, you know, you're suddenly in a different mode, but you're doing the, doing the thing that you've been that, that that's the dream right there is service is, is, is serving those customers that that food that you love right um, and then 
winding down, going to sleep, waking up and doing it all over again the next day. So if you're, if you don't really have that passion to, to be a holistic cook, then there's lots of room for different, for different uh, approaches. Um, and, and some of them are more about managing people and some of them are more about managing products or moving logistics, you know, uh, education, you want to become a teacher. So there's lots of different entry points into the, into the profession. But for there's cook- more options today than ever before in terms of. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. That's for sure. So um, do you, um, do you both miss the restaurant industry? No, I miss service. You miss service? I miss service. Yeah. The classical restaurant industry, I don't miss at all. I mean, I think wow. maybe it's uh, what I should say is I don't miss Toronto. <laughs> no, because, wow. You know, like uh, this is one point we never touched before later, before earlier. When I came to Canada, uh, I was so overwhelmed positively with like, Kensington, Chinatown, St. Lawrence Market, and all these places where you kind of different mm-hmm. foods and all of that, right? So, um, you know, so it's not, don't get me wrong. I mean, I do like uh, the service of uh, for people and cooking. It's just like that uh, uh, form of like being in Toronto was, I mean, how long I'm away from Toronto since 1990, you know? So yeah, I have, 30 years, yeah. I have, a, I have a totally different life now, you know? So, and when I cook here, that's just like, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, the service is always fantastic. If you actually have a menu together, what you're exactly very happy with it, and you know you can uh, produce it and all of that. And uh, that's the best part, right? Obviously, right? But uh, when I say I don't miss it, it's like, for me, it's always like uh, I do uh, over all these years now. Not the beginning, uh, I was always open in the winter too, but now it's like uh, we are kind of more or less, the winter time is more or less the dream time for me. Like where I reading, I do reading. Regenerate. Uh, I work, I build myself a studio in uh, at my barn and I work uh, sculpture and stuff. So it's I do all of it, right? But at the same time, I'm thinking about the next year and uh, how I kind of uh, approach uh, my new season with food and, uh, you know, but it's not in a way it's kind of uh, a classical service anymore for me. Well, that's interesting. And even though you may not, you know, you may not miss Toronto, Toronto misses both of you. I know that um, your restaurants were wonderful experiences through the years and really uh, created a lot of excitement in, in Toronto from a restaurant point of view. So I know everybody misses you. But it was great catching up today and we could talk forever and we we obviously don't have all that time. But thank you so much for taking time and making time in your schedule to be here. And um, and hopefully we'll see each other at some point um, very soon. Yeah. Thank you yes. very much, Rosanna. Thanks, Rosanna. Michael, see you later, man. Hey, take care. Eh? Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. All take right. care. Bye. 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 We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.